from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 20th. Today, why supermarket shelves are still empty, how grocery workers are coping with the risks of their job, and the problem of trash pickup. My name is Laura Riley, and I am the business of food reporter at The Washington Post. So describe to me what regular people, regular consumers are seeing when they go to the grocery store and try to buy food. It really depends on who you are, where you are, and when you're going. I think one thing we can all say is there's probably not going to be toilet paper yet in a lot of places, but the gaps are idiosyncratic and a little bit different geographically and depending on the time of day or depending on the time of week. But we are still seeing gaps. I think we've all recognized that. And it's frustrating and it's a little bit scary. It seems like something we've never had before, you know, kind of big swaths of the grocery store with uh, empty shelves. So, you know, I think that there are a lot of different reasons for some of those gaps. And, And generally, what are some of those reasons? So some of those gaps are because before the pandemic, we spent more than half of our money in restaurants, in food service. And, you know, that had been growing year over year. You know, several years ago, restaurant meals surpassed grocery stores in terms of just total sales. So if you have grocery stores basically picking up all the slack that has been created by restaurants closing, that's a huge pivot for grocery stores to accommodate, you know, all of us eating all of our meals at home. So some of it is just a sheer volume thing. Some of it is that there are specific things that have boomed week over week. Like this week, hair dye is the thing. You know, we've all gone without a haircut or hair color for, you know, a month now. So there are unanticipated surges in demand for some things. But a lot of it is because the food that goes to food service looks different, is in different quantities, is labeled differently, and it can't easily be pivoted from big companies, the big distributors that distribute to restaurants. They can't just strike up a relationship all of a sudden with Kroger and Safeway. You know, that those are two very different mechanisms to get food to people, and they don't historically have a lot of overlap. So it seems like in some of these cases, it's just that the food exists. It just can't get to the right places for people to buy it in the right time frame. But in other cases, it seems like there are actually shortages on food and the food that's being produced. And I wanted to talk about some specific types of food that people have had trouble getting a hold of, starting with beef. Well, initially, uh, several weeks ago, it was just panic buying. We all filled up our fridges, our freezers. If you have a big freezer, you know, in your garage or whatever, that is filled with meat right now. I think those are the kinds of things we buy staple goods. We buy, you know, flour and rice and potatoes and things that are going to last a long time. And certainly animal proteins are something that we all um, are kind of superstitious about, that you need enough in in the event of an emergency. So early on, it was a function of us over-purchasing, you know, kind of hoarding. 
But since then, um, unfortunately, there have been a lot of COVID-19 outbreaks in meat processing facilities. So just in the past week, we've seen a closure of a huge plant, a Smithfield plant in South Dakota, a JBS plant in Colorado, a Cargill, all of the major meat manufacturers or meat you know, production facilities have had COVID outbreaks. And so some of them have closed. Some have slowed the line speed and spread people out so that there's social distancing. There's also been a ton of absenteeism. So some of it is just things have slowed down because uh, people have been afraid to come to work. So of the seven hugest processing plants, and these are processing plants for beef that can accommodate 5,000 head of cattle a day. Two of the seven are closed right now, and the the net is basically that there is twenty five percent less less beef being processed this week than you know a month ago. Oh wow, that is pretty significant. Yeah, it is significant. There's plenty of beef in the system, and those cows still exist. The cows are still on the feedlots. It's just the bottleneck is at the processing. Another interesting thing is that. What restaurants buy of a cow, it's completely different than what consumers in a grocery store buy. We use the high-end stuff, the strips, the ribs, the tenderloins, the sirloin in food service. And for whatever reason, in a retail context, we want ground beef, we want chuck, we want the cheap stuff. So we also are creating this huge imbalance where we want pound after pound of ground beef, but we don't want to buy the super expensive tenderloin. So those are in the deep freeze somewhere, kind of as we try to figure out what what we're going to do with them. So, so then what about something that is not as intensive to produce, something like flour? I mean, we've heard a lot about there being a big run on flour because all these people are baking. So why is it that whenever I go to the grocery store, I cannot find any flour at all? So flour sales have tripled in the past few weeks. It's a stress reliever for a lot of us. Baking is very therapeutic. We've got a little time on our hands. So for the past seven to 10 years, there's been a steady decrease in the sales of flour. And some of that is kind of carb phobia and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, Yeast sales, as of March 21st, were up 647%. So we don't have a grain shortage. You know, the grain was all from last season. It was grown, stored, milled months ago. So what it is is a disconnect. Again, it's it's the great divide between food service, between restaurants and bakeries and that kind of thing, and the grocery store. So most of the flour that is milled to go to food service is packaged in 50-pound bags. And that is a really, really hard sell at the grocery store. No one needs that much. And to repackage is incredibly expensive, labor-intensive, and time-consuming. So there is plenty of flour in the system. It's just not where we need it. And then what about something that is more perishable? Produce, um, and, and maybe specifically, let's talk about tomatoes. How is what's going on with coronavirus affecting the way that, that crops are being harvested and how they're getting to grocery stores and whether they're getting to grocery stores? Well, tomatoes are a fascinating example. So basically, for a fresh product like tomatoes, Mexico grows most of it for us. So especially for the retail side, there's price pressure on the retail side. We want the cheapest. So whoever's buying for, you know, for Walmart or whatever, they want to call their one guy, get the cheapest tomatoes they can because that's that's what sells. So Mexican produce is available in retail. The Florida produce, so Florida tomatoes, say, the Immokalee tomatoes, those all go to food service. So all of a sudden, their whole market dropped off a cliff. You know, all of those hamburgers with the perfect round tomato on the top, 
They're not being sold basically right now. So Florida produce, those are basically lying fallow in the field. I mean, they're basically being disked under because they don't have an end user. Meanwhile, the food banks are are dying for food. I mean, they're they're beleaguered right now. So there's a huge disconnect. So, so what is the disconnect? Why can't they just get it to food banks or to grocery stores where it could be, you know, sold individually rather than sold to restaurants? Well, the interesting word you use there is they. Who's the they? So a farmer in Florida has 10 acres of squash that ordinarily go to food service. Who pays for that to get to a food bank? You know, it's not the farmer. Who's paying the farmer for the, the squash? Is it the food bank? They don't have the money right now. They're, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can to feed this huge surge of unemployed and newly food insecure people. And then there's the mechanism of transportation. You know, all of the produce requires a refrigerated truck. Whose trucks are they? Where are they coming from? You know, are they going to volunteer their trucks? Who's paying for that? And we've seen some pretty frankly, remarkable images of of farmers either having to like dump all these crops into the ground and basically let them rot or dairy farmers just like pouring, you know, tons and tons of gallons of milk just into the drain? Yeah. Well, for for dairy, about 50% of cheese goes to restaurants and 60% of butter. 7 or 8% go of, of fluid milk goes to student lunch, you know, school lunches. You know, and you have to you have to milk those cows. You can't you can't say, okay, Bessie, you know, we're just going to we'll catch you every other day. So the the production is there. You have to milk the cows. You have to produce the milk. um, But you're going to tank the the price of milk if you put that on the market. So a lot of, you know, those are the problems that you can't avoid creating these gluts. So how devastating is this to the food industry, the fact that you have both supply of of some kinds of food and also the distribution of, it seems like, all kinds of food essentially disrupted for this pretty significant period? It depends on the sector. I mean, I've been told repeatedly by people that there is plenty of food in our system. We've got months worth of food. I think that that most people would agree that the rockiest position to be in right now is is those in the, in the restaurant industry because it's just very unclear how long small restaurants, independent restaurants can go with very very diminished income even if they're still doing, you know, takeout and delivery. If you're down to 10% of your your gross there's no way to dig out from that. And then once, you know, it's not like when this is over, that it's going to be a light switch that turns turns back on and everyone's going to restaurants, you know, the way they used to. I think there's going to be trepidation about sitting in a crowded space. And so I think the restaurant industry is going to come back, but very, very slowly. Laura Riley covers the business of food for The Post. Abba Batarai, as the retail reporter for The Post, when you go out grocery shopping these days, what are you seeing? 
I've been going out about once a week and it sort of takes a bit of mental preparation to even get in my car and drive to the supermarket. But um, once I'm there, I've noticed that people are scared. Employees are trying their best to stay away from customers. Customers are trying to do the same, but that becomes very difficult in crowded quarters. So anybody who's trying to pick up a jar of spaghetti sauce is sort of coming into close contact with people waiting to check out. And it's just this big crowd of people that you can't avoid. And the thing is, we're shopping there for maybe 30 minutes or an hour, but these workers are increasingly working 8, 10, 12 hours a day in very close quarters. And a lot of grocery workers say that the number of people coming in through their doors has at least doubled in the last few weeks. So they're dealing with hundreds, if not thousands of people a day. They're terrified of actually accepting money and giving change. I mean, that simple act has suddenly become very frightening to them. Grocery workers are in many ways on the front lines of this pandemic. They are having to continue reporting to work. A lot of them are reporting longer shifts than ever, bigger workloads. They're really kind of swamped as customers come in and are desperate to buy up food. But many of them don't have the protective gear that they need. They're just starting to get masks and gloves. And a lot of stores are starting to, you know, put in stickers on the floor marking six foot intervals. But, you know, they're saying that customers don't necessarily listen. And there's always somebody who sort of gets too close. And are there numbers of of how many grocery workers have either gotten sick or have passed away because of the coronavirus? The numbers are pretty piecemeal right now, but we do know from the Grocery Workers Union that at least 30 of their members have died at supermarkets as well as meatpacking plants and food processing facilities. And we've assembled sort of reports of about a dozen other supermarket deaths. We also know that thousands of workers have already tested positive for the coronavirus. So what is it like for these grocery workers knowing that they could potentially get exposed, knowing that they probably have a higher likelihood of contracting coronavirus, but still having to show up to work every day? A lot of them are very frightened. They feel like they have little choice. They need their paychecks. Um, They want to go out. They want to serve their community, but they're also feeling very ill-prepared to do so. Jasmine Kaprilova is a Trader Joe's employee who has been with the company for about 10 years. She started feeling sick about a month ago and, you know, had a cough, a fever, body aches, all sorts of symptoms, has stayed home for three weeks with paid leave, but is out of paid leave now and isn't sure how she's going to make ends meet without her paycheck. Jasmine has pre-existing conditions that put her at higher risk for complications from COVID-19. She hasn't been tested, so she's not sure if she has it, but she has been sick for over a month. And so she's sort of terrified of leaving her house at this point. I've just been too sick and too scared of potentially being contagious, getting sicker, all these things. (coughs) So I have refrained from returning to work, even though I'm not going to be compensated. And a number of other employees at her store have had similar symptoms over the last month. She says she has been pressing management for masks and gloves starting in late February. On average, most Trader Joe's employees come in contact with at least 500 customers on a daily basis. I began trying to become vocal, not just for myself, but my crew, because we were scared. And 
I was trying to convey to management that we needed to start having crew member meetings addressing the issues that were happening <laughs> and any preventative measures that could be taken. And during that time, <clears throat> I was actually told that it was against the policy of the store for us to wear gloves or masks. Shortly after my friend group, the four of us, started showing symptoms. Um, <clears throat> one of us was diagnosed with pneumonia, which we know during <laughs> that time, that was a, a common misdiagnosis for COVID. Um, another one of us got a severe respiratory illness. And, another and they've just recently started to provide masks for employees. And for workers who are still going into work at grocery stores, how are they trying to keep themselves safe? Everyone's sort of come up with their own system. I talked to one person who's taking, you know, bags of disposable gloves from home, and some workers are keeping hand sanitizer bottles in their pockets. Others have this elaborate system for once they get home, you know, how they take off their clothes, how they disinfect themselves before they go back in and interact with their families. You know, it's worth noting that a lot of these workers are terrified of getting sick themselves, but they're also very scared of spreading on this virus to the people they live with, which often include children or older parents or grandparents in their households. When I come home, the first thing I do is I take off my work clothes. I wash my hands. I go take a shower. My, my brother was, was born premature, so all of his life he's been susceptible to upper respiratory infections. So that adds stress for me because I'm afraid that I bring it home, I give it to my brother, my brother's lungs aren't as strong. That scares me. One of the people I spoke to was Doug Pressler, who works as a cashier at a supermarket chain in Iowa. He's been working there for about five or six months, so he's pretty new to the job. Pre, Pre-COVID-19, I went, I went into work and I enjoy my job. I enjoy the people I work with. So I always went to work generally in a, in a good mood and really didn't fear anything. You know, it, it's a comfortable environment to work in. Our Most of our customers are repeat customers. So, you know, I have good relationships with them. And I really like the interaction I get to have with my community and with my, our customers. Doug has been taking his own hand sanitizer and gloves to his shifts, his eight-hour shifts as a cashier. And, you know, for the most part, he said he's been in pretty good spirits. He feels like he has a purpose and he's there to serve it. But more and more, he's starting to get afraid. I can remember explicitly joking with some of my customers like, so how are you doing today? Are you surviving the apocalypse? Yeah, you know, I guess putting humor on it to try to relieve myself a little bit. And, and what really changed it for me was twofold. The, the first thing that changed it for me was a, a good friend of my brother's and mine, uh, his mother and father-in-law um, were diagnosed with the virus. And she's consequently passed away from it. And then Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks came out with the 100,000 to 200,000 number and asking people to only go to the grocery store if they absolutely needed to. And my response to that was, yeah, but I work there. You know, I have to go there every day. And it immediately amped up my anxiety level. 
And are some of them considering just not going to work at all, you know, quitting their jobs because the risk is too intense? More and more, I'm hearing from workers who are deciding to quit, either, you know, taking a few weeks off or going on a leave of absence if they can afford it. Others are sort of reconsidering altogether, especially if they're older. And a lot of times their children have started to urge them to stay home. So they're really starting to think about what's best for their safety. And I think this is a moment that is really making some people and 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 some companies rethink how they treat grocery workers and and rethink the the essential role that they're serving. Then they are at risk, and yet they're out there because getting people food is is a really important job right now. Absolutely. And for so long, companies, employers have treated these workers like they're disposable. They, you know, typically make the minimum wage or maybe a little bit more. They're, they're thought of as just completely replaceable. If some, if they don't want to do the job, they can easily find somebody else who will. And now, I think there's a sense throughout the country that that's not the case, that these people are really putting their lives at risk to help the community. I I also contemplated taking a leave. At the end of the day, I got to a place where I felt like I was letting my teammates down if I did that, that it was not necessarily my responsibility, but I would want them to do that for me. And I didn't want to be afraid to go to work. I didn't want fear to control me. So I allowed myself to be afraid until I walked in the door at work. And then once I got into work and could, could start doing my job, then it would, it would subside. And have companies been actually making tangible changes to address those risks and and address the ways that they are systemically underpaid, especially in the context of a public health crisis? We're starting to see the beginnings of that. A lot of chains have said that they're going to start paying $2 more an hour just temporarily during the pandemic. But there are signs that that may stick after this is over as well. So we're seeing that, you know, this is also a time when companies like Walmart and Amazon and Kroger are hiring tens of thousands of workers. They're desperate for workers right now. And so in some ways, the employees kind of have an upper hand for the first time. Employees are speaking out. They're increasingly going on strike or starting petitions. They're calling out their managers, you know, at their stores. They want to make it clear that they want to be at work, but they also want to feel prepared. They want to have the protective gear that they need to stay safe. But even as things get better for some grocery workers, there's still a fear that others might be left behind. I am nearly broke. And... uh, that is just going to get worse because honestly, I'm more scared (coughs) of dying and not being able to have the stress to physically fight the illness and the way it's affected my body. (coughs) I'm more scared of dying than I am to collect a paycheck. However, as soon as I feel like I can possibly work shifts again, I will (coughs) be trying to return to work. Jasmine and her daughter have been on the verge of homelessness for about five years. They were in a house fire and have been really struggling to rebuild since then. And Jasmine said that she's been trying to shield her daughter from the worst parts of this pandemic, uh, but she's increasingly running out of answers. Her daughter is seeing that she's not going to work. She's not sure how she's going to pay rent next month. And she's really starting to worry about what the future could hold. I have to 
work. I have to get a paycheck. I have to, or my daughter and I will not eat. Abba Bhattarai writes about retail for The Post. And now, one more thing. Okay. I care about you. I don't want you exposed. This is it right here. Y'all got to take care of each other. If you're sick, go home. Don't come in. As coronavirus continues to spread across the country, local governments are figuring out how to keep their sanitation workers safe, especially now while people are stuck at home and trash is piling up faster than usual. Chris Geldart is the director of Public Works in D.C. Look, our people are no different than anybody else. They're no different than the police officers and the firefighters, putting themselves out there to potentially be exposed more than the people that are staying at home. Video producer Aaron Patrick O'Connor went out with D.C. sanitation workers, like Octavia French. We out there. We out there in it. They want you six feet distance. In the truck, we're not six feet distance. So it's kind of hard for us to stay six feet difference when we all right there in the truck. We all right there, so it's kind of hard. We just got to make sure we keep ourselves, all three of us keep ourselves up. And if one of us sick, don't come in. Like, spare the next person. We give them the mask, they put the mask on, get in the truck, windows down, try to keep some airflow going on in there so it's not, uh, we're lessening as much as we can any exposure they'll have from each other. And really at this point, that's the best we can do with our folks in the vehicles. I do take pride in my job because if it don't, if I don't do it, then who gonna do it? No, somebody gotta be the one to, to go out there and get it. And then on another count, they, they depend on us. Because if we don't do it, then it just be out there, then that causes another problem. Collecting trash is a pass-fail business, right? You either did or you didn't. There's no in-between. And our guys feel that every day and making sure they're getting through their routes and they're getting every can, they're putting the cans back where they go and they're doing that work. Um, you know, that fails and that truly is to society, a failure of society, a failure of government. My job don't stop. I gotta go to work rain, sleet, or snow. I gotta be out there. I know it's a virus out there, but I just gotta make sure I do to protect myself, you know? Cause people losing their lives off of it. This is something new to me. I try not to think about it. Patrick O'Connor is a video journalist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. 
Thanks for listening. Shout out to listener John, who shared some thoughts about Sebastian Smee's Saturday story about artwork in the time of social distancing. As a fan of French art, John said that he thought the episode was like being in the room together. If you've got thoughts on that story or any other, send us an email at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.